0: Hello, good afternoon. We're in John and chapter 2 this week as we make our way through John's Gospel. John and chapter 2 and verse 1. On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples and when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, "'They have no wine.' And Jesus said to her, woman, what, has, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill all the jars with water. And they filled them This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there a few days. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy and inerrant word. Uh, We've seen already in John's gospel, haven't we, that Jesus, who is the word, the life, the light, the Christ, the King, the Lamb, the Lord, the Son of God, the Son of Man is bigger than you think. And now this afternoon I want you to see something else. He is not only bigger, but he is better. Everything changed with Jesus. When Jesus came along, he was not salt and pepper on some bland potatoes. He was instead a whole new meal an entirely new feast forming a new people inaugurating a new kingdom bringing about a new age sometimes we are so familiar with jesus we miss the surprising things that he says and he does and we are very familiar with jesus and we are very familiar with the miracle at the wedding of cana in galilee what a great story water into wine. And while familiarity may not breed contempt, it can breed over time a seemingly irrelevance. I want you to see this afternoon, not only is he bigger than you think, he is better than you can imagine. When you encounter Jesus in the Gospels and begin to see him as the people around him saw him. You know he must be so much bigger and so much better than you dare to think possible. Even if you've been at church for Sundays for decades. The Gospel of John can be divided into two sections. The first part of the book until chapter 12 through chapter 12 is sometimes called the Book of Signs. The Book of Signs because in it we see Jesus performing seven miraculous signs he turns the water into wine chapter 2 he heals the royal official's son in chapter 4 he heals the lame man in chapter 5 he feeds the 5000 in chapter 6 he walks on the water in chapter 6 he heals the man born blind in chapter 9 and number 7 he raises lazarus from the dead in chapter 11 that's the first half of the book called the book of signs the second half of the book of john is sometimes called the book of glory because it focuses on the glory of christ in his suffering in his death in his resurrection and sprinkled throughout the gospel in both halves are the seven i am statements i am the bread of life i am the light of the world. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth and the life. And number seven, I am the true vine. So John, inspired by the Spirit of God, is particular and deliberate and organised in what he is doing as he writes his Gospel. So there are seven signs, even though we know from the end of the book, that if all the signs were written about, it would fill up the whole world. There are seven signs, seven I am statements, and there are two halves, book of signs and book of glory. And this afternoon we look at the first of the seven signs, the wedding at Cana in Galilee. It's introduced in verse 1, and in verse 11 it is confirmed that we read again that this is the first of his signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. In this miracle, we see that the Lord Jesus is not only bigger, but he's also better. And I want us to see this miracle that builds and crescendos into this theme. We're going to do it by unpacking Jesus' interactions with three characters, his mother, the master of the feast, and the disciples. First of all, Jesus and his mother. In verse 1, it says on the third day, now, John has been giving us his chrono- this chronology, this chrono- this chronology beg your pardon, very deliberately through the first chapter and now into the second. We've had several next days. So, when it says in verse 1, on the third day, that is the third day as reckoned from the last day, which was when Jesus calls Philip and Nathanael. So, from that day three days later. And remember in the Jewish reckoning, they count the days inclusively, meaning day one, day two, day three. It's really two days as we would count it. Think of Good Friday and Easter. On the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. So counting Friday is the first day, Saturday is the second day, Easter Sunday is the third. So this is two days later as we would count it. We'll come back to that at the end because I think that is very significant. But here we read on the third day after his encounter with Nathaniel. He is at a wedding and we're introduced to Jesus' mother. Now you notice it never mentions the name of his mother. We don't hear in John's Gospel the name Mary. Now she's mentioned in the other Gospels, why would John not mention her by name? It may be so she's not to be confused with the other Marys, but I think much more likely because John has such a respect for Jesus' mother. And you remember why, that on the cross, John 19, verse 25, standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, John doesn't mention her name, his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. We could say that there's a lot of Marys, so he wants to make it clear. And then verse 26, and when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, which is a reference to John, that's how John always describes himself. John doesn't want to draw attention to himself, doesn't mention himself by name. But the self-designation he gives is the disciple whom Jesus loved. And on the cross, Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby. He said to his mother, woman, which is the same language as he uses in chapter 2 woman behold your son then he said to the disciple behold your mother and from that hour the disciple took her into his own home. It's another indication that John is the author of the book. John is the disciple whom Jesus loved and Jesus on the cross Joseph must have died by this point. Mary is a widow woman behold your son and he said to John behold your mother and from that hour John took Mary to his own home. In other words Jesus looks after his mother to the end John is going to take care of her so you can understand that John with that kind of respect doesn't mention her by name but speaks of her respectfully as Jesus's mother. All to say Jesus is at this wedding, Mary is at this wedding It must have been the way to have a close relative for Jesus to be invited. And Jesus obviously brings some of his friends. He brings his disciples, probably five at this point. Peter, Andrew, John, Philip, Nathaniel. And we know it must have been a close relative because we have indication that Mary feels some responsibility for what has happened. They have run out of wine. So she comes to to Jesus to tell him about it. Celebration. In the ancient world, for the Jews, for a wedding could last up to a week. And you notice that the master of the feast, he talks to the bridegroom, that it was the bridegroom's family's responsibility. So Mary is somewhat connected. She's brought in on this and comes to Jesus. Now, she's she's not expecting a miracle. We read here, this is the first sign that Jesus does. So she doesn't know. She's not expecting Jesus to make it start raining wine from heaven. But she knows this, that he is trustworthy, reliable, resourceful, special. So she comes to Jesus for help. this This is more than just a little social faux pas. This is a potential catastrophe. Not just an awkward moment but it was a great expectation to provide for and care for the guests for the duration of the wedding. This was very embarrassing. Some scholars have argued that it could have opened up the family to litigation because in the ancient world they were known for hospitality and for reciprocity. So this is more than just an awkward little faux pas. This is a catastrophe waiting to happen. So she says to the Lord Jesus, her son, there is no wine. Jesus speaks to her in verse 4, and he speaks to her in a way that we find surprising. Woman! Now, this language is not rude. It's the language he used on the cross. We just saw it. It's the language that Jesus used to the Syrophoenician woman in Matthew 15. But it isn't the normal way a son would talk to his mother. One commentator says, well, maybe it is on the level of mom, you know, polite, respectful. It's not the normal thing that you would say to your mother in that culture, but it isn't rude. Or it could be even somewhat closer to saying, my dear lady, not something that you would say to your mother, but not rude either. So Jesus here, when his mother comes and says, they have no wine, says, my dear lady, woman, What is this to me? And in the Greek it literally says, what what to me and to you. A strange phrase, but the idea is, what does this have to do with something for me? Or as translated here, what does this have to do with me? Jesus says in verse 4, my hour has not yet come. And you know that, that's a common refrain in the Gospels. It's Jesus' way of saying, it is not yet my time To die. It is not my time to fully reveal myself, to show all of my glory. That will happen in my suffering, my death, my resurrection. It is not yet time to make obvious who I am. Which is a good reminder that the Lord Jesus' timing is not always our timing. Jesus says, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. But Jesus will do something in just a moment. It also shows us something as Jesus relates to Mary. It shows us the lesson that there is no inside track with Jesus because surely if somebody had an inside track with Jesus it would have been his mother. But there is something greater than family obligation. God's divine purpose. God's kingdom. So everything, even family ties, must be subordinated to the divine mission. We have to remember that. I've often thought the last acceptable idolatry amongst evangelical Christians is the idolatry of the family. God, I would like to do all of those things, but I do have a family. I would like to come to church, but my family has got things going on. Jesus almost reproves Mary to say, woman, Do you not know? It is not my time yet. So what are we to make of Mary here? It is worth mentioning in passing that we certainly see debunked some of the later Catholic traditions that would develop. In some Catholic theology, they say when Jesus called her woman, he was thinking of Genesis 3 or the woman in Revelation, but other women in the Gospels are called woman by Jesus. So this isn't Jesus giving a particular designation to Mary. Other Catholic theology says that Mary is the mediatrix, a mediator. People goes to Mary, and then she goes to Jesus, then Jesus helps the people. So maybe we go to Mary and we work through Mary, she gets what we want from Christ. And that doesn't work either. Because Jesus is almost reproachful of his own mother. And secondly, what about all the other Gospels when somebody says, I have a daughter who is sick, I have a son who is dead, my brother Lazarus is dead, and Jesus helps, and there is a miracle. Are they all mediatrics as well? And we also see at the end of this passage, verse 12, that it refutes the notion that Mary was a virgin for the rest of her life, her whole life. Catholic tradition, people assert the perpetual virginity of Mary to elevate her to some kind of exalted divine status. But we see here clearly that he went with his mother and his brothers, which could also include brothers and sisters. The point being is that there were siblings in the family, which is why Matthew 1, 25 says Joseph knew her not until she brought forth a son. Jesus is referred to as Mary's firstborn. So Mary had other children with Joseph. So we can set aside these Catholic notions about Mary. But we want to be honest because this is a positive portrayal of Jesus' mother. She is stopped a bit short, but she says with an expression of faith in verse 5. And I love this verse. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. There are worse definitions of Christianity than that. What is a Christian? A Christian is somebody who does whatever Jesus tells you to do. At the end of the day, when we don't follow Jesus, it's because we don't want Jesus telling us what to do. Jesus does get into our business. He messes with our family, with our lives, with our idols, our own little self-made gods. What does it mean to be a Christian? You do whatever Jesus tells you to do. Of course, that is not all we would say, but that's a pretty good place to start. The Lordship of Christ is the heart of the matter. Are you willing to do what Jesus Christ tells you to do? Mary says, do whatever he tells you to do. And until you get to that point, it's just working on behavioural modification. Could you just shape up? Could you do this? This is what the Bible says. When the heart of the matter is Jesus, your Saviour and Lord. Are you willing to do whatever he tells you to do? Because that's what it means to be a Christian. Mary expresses loyalty and some burgeoning faith. So now we come to the second character, the master of the feast. Look at verse 6. The information here is important. We will see why in a few moments. There were six stone water jars there, large jars, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So it says in the Greek, two or three measures which equals 20 or 30 gallons. So there's a 120 to 180 gallons ready here in these stone water jars. And they're Running out, Or maybe they're empty because they have to draw from the well and fill them up again. But they're here for the Jewish rites of purification. And what, it, well, what are they? Well, it's possible that they were for the consummation act of the husband and wife at the wedding would have, and they needed to be ritually pure and clean for that. Or more likely, it was just simply for the washing of hands. Washing of hands is our big slogan at the moment, isn't it? But what the washing of hands? Because you need to be ritually pure before you could partake of the wedding feast. So you have a big party, you have, or last a long time. You need a lot of water for all this ritual purification. Then we come to the miracle itself. Verse 7, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water and they filled them up to the brim. And interestingly we don't know exactly when or how the miracle took place. But we know that sometime between drawing the water from the well, putting it in the jars and asking the servants to draw from the jars and bring it to the master of the feast, somewhere in all of that, the water became wine. The size of the jars is important because it tells us there's no way that this was just smuggled in from somewhere else. You don't smuggle in 20 to 30 gallons of gallon stone jars and say we have some wine hidden in the back. This is a miracle. Let me say a word about the wine. It was alcoholic wine. In verse 10, the master of the feast understands you serve the good wine first and then when people have drunk freely then you bring out the poor wine because they don't notice any more. You can't say this is unfermented grape juice. I am personally a teetotaler but I don't say that every Christian has to be a teetotaler. We see here and from plenty of passages in the Old Testament where wine is described as a gift from God. That there is a proper place to drink alcohol when you are legally of age and to do so in moderation. There's just no way around the fact that Jesus' first miracle is turning water into wine. To go from there to saying Christians should never drink alcohol takes a massive amount of gymnastics. John Calvin said, when God daily gives us a large supply of wine, it is our fault if his kindness is an excitement to luxury. Don't blame God for the gift. It is true that wine was watered down. It would probably be two or three parts water to one part wine. When the Old Testament uses the language of strong drink, there is wine and then strong drink. Strong drink was of higher alcohol content probably more what we would think of as wine today. But it was different, but it was alcoholic nonetheless. It was considered a great gift, as we will see in the moment. And now notice what, how amazed, what, what, what actually amazed the master of the feast when he spoke to the bridegroom. Look at verses 9 and 10. You're very familiar with this miracle, as I am, and you think, what did impress the master of the feast? Now it was not the quantity, although it was simply amazing to have 120 or 180 gallons of wine. That's some wedding gift that Jesus was giving to the couple. The family maybe was too poor. Maybe that's why they'd run out of wine. Jesus is giving them quite the gift. It's not the transformation, though that's what we normally focus on. The miracle that we look at is water becoming wine with all its grapey qualities and fermenting, that's quite amazing. You just can't leave water out and it becomes wine. It just doesn't happen. So we're amazed by the transformation. But that's not what amazes the master of the feast. Did you notice? What amazed the master of the feast? As I was studying this again, I saw with fresh eyes, because I'm so prone to think the miracle is water into wine. But the miracle... What amazed the master of the feast is that the wine was so good. The wine was so good. Verse 10 Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. The master of the feast is speaking to the bridegroom. He doesn't know where this came from. He's saying, Your family is amazing. You've kept the good wine until now. So the miracle, as he understands it, is this is the best wine. Wine in the Bible is the expression of the good life. It is the expression of God's favour. Like dwelling under your own vine and a fig tree is an expression of prosperity. And having wine flowing is an expression of lavish goodness. We would say steak and lobster or haagen He's amazed at how good the wine was. The wine is better than I thought possible. This isn't what I was expecting. It is far better. Now there is even something more going on here than meets the eye. Remember I said at the beginning that John is so careful, so deliberate at how he lays things out. You don't just um, by accident get seven signs, seven I am statements. John is clearly doing something here with the number seven. It's a biblical number. It's completion, creation. Now remember what day we're on. Because why in these first two chapters does John take the time to say this day, the next day and the next day unless there's something significant about the days. So look at John 1, 1 to 18, the pro-Luke. That's the theology. Theology. The ministry starts in 19 to 28. we see introduced to John the Baptist. So that's day one. Day one in the life of the early ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then verse 29, the next day, day two. Verse 36, the next day. We're on day three. Tracking with me? Verse 36, the next day, day three. Now, before we go to verse 43, you have to see that there's another interesting demarcation that John gives us. Because go to th- verse 39, chapter 1. He said to them, come and see. And they came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day. It was about the 10th hour. Why give that information? Well, we, clearly he was there. But why did John say suddenly what time of day it was? Because John wants us to notice that it's the 10th hour, which is 4pm. Now, near the equator means you're getting near to the end of the day. So they stay with Jesus by implication until the next day. Where on day three, they stay with Jesus into day four. And then we get into verse 43, the next day. The next day after they'd spent the night with, at Jesus' accommodation. Because it was getting late in the evening. So now we're on day five. And then we come to verse one. On the third day. They count the days inclusively. Remember Good Friday and Easter. Two days later. They were on day five in chapter one. And now five, six, seven. So what do we have in chapters one and two? A perfect week. A perfect week in the life of the early ministry of Jesus. The seven days. Now I'm not saying that this is the Sabbath. The Sabbath probably happened in between. Between the end of chapter 1 and chapter 2. Which is why we're not reading of anything happening here on the Sabbath. But the seventh day as it is reckoned in this week suggests something significant. It suggests just as we began the book in Genesis. We have Genesis on the brain. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. We expect to hear in the, in the beginning God, but instead we have in the beginning the Word. And now, just as we would have in Genesis, God is creating with His seven day creation week. Now we have the Word with His initial seven days of the new creation. Jesus doesn't create in his miracles. Not ex nihilo. What he does is he transforms. He multiplies loaves and fishes. He takes water and turns it into wine. He makes something new. Which is a picture of what is happening here. This isn't creation ex nihilo. Out of nothing but taking what is. And shaping and transforming. And announcing it as new. In other words, the Messiah has come. The joyous messianic wedding feast has arrived. Something new, new creation with Jesus. The choice wine of the gospel is replacing the worn out water of the Jewish ceremonies. You see all those wonderful connections, the gospel. John is hinting at something when he mentions that not just for their six stone water jars, but for the Jewish Rites of purification. Why did he say that? Because with these pictures, the wine has literally run out. The symbols of the Jewish ceremonial law, their rites of purification. What it was to be ritually cleaned. Jesus changes everything. There is no need for the water pots of Jewish ritual purification, because we have the abundant, ever-flowing feast of messianic wine and we will see this played out in chapters 2 and 3 and 4 in the coming weeks and months and over and over again Jesus is introducing himself, is announcing himself as the one who makes all things new I have new wine I am the new temple, you need a new life, you need a new heart, you need a new birth I will give you a new heart the newness of the wine, the quality of the wine is what is so surprising. Which is why I directed your attention to verse 10. The miracle, as the master of the feast understands, is not just a transformation, but now they have the best. It is a sign, it is pointing us to what Jesus is bringing. Finally, we have what we've been wanting, waiting for, and it is bigger and better than we thought possible. Jesus comes to introduce the new joyous era, the Messianic wedding feast. So when Mary said, way back up in verse 3, they have no wine, she said much more than she knew. Judaism Judaism, at this point was out of wine. It was spent. Ready for Messiah to come. The story ends in the best way possible. With a perfect ending to the miracle in verse 3. You have kept the good wine until now. In verse 10. You have kept the good wine until now. Number 3. The disciples. The disciples in verse 11. The first of the signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And manifested his glory. In the first half of John's Gospel. We see the glory revealed. In the second half of John's Gospel, we see the glory received. He reveals the glory here in these miraculous signs. And he receives the glory in his suffering, death and resurrection. This is just the beginning. This is the beginning of the greater things. Remember, Jesus said to Nathanael last week, verse 51, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open, the angels of God ascending and descending on you. In verse 50 he said, because I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You'll see greater things than these. And here we have it, the first sign, the wedding at Cana in Galilee. The Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, use a different word for the miracles. They use the word dunamis, which means power, dynamite, mighty working. But John doesn't use the word. He uses the word signs. Because for John, not so much as it points to Jesus' great power, although it does, but it tells us something about Jesus. And in the first sign, though they don't understand it, that Jesus who has arrived on the scene is bringing something bigger and better than you thought possible. So my friend, what will you do with Jesus. Are you ready for the new day? Do you feel like the wine has run out on your life? That there's no joy left? You have no purpose. You have a guilty conscience. You've done it your way. The wine has run out and you are thirsty. What will you do with Jesus? The disciples saw his glory and believed. And that is the difference between the crowd, a fan a well-wisher and a disciple. Crowds can be impressed. Fans can marvel. Well-wishers can like Jesus. Disciples see his glory and believe, and they did. What will you do? There is a better feast to come than you thought possible. This is the gospel. What will you do? Disciples see and believe. Saving the best for last, the gospel There is a feast to come in, my friend. Make sure you do not miss it. May God bless the word for his glory and for our eternal good. Amen.